Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Betsy Timboom, Promise of God, by Mike Evans, with permission from Time Worthy Books, and we are on Chapter 47. As the days passed, the weather turned colder, yet we still only had the single small blanket at night. Even sleeping as we did, crammed together side by side with no room to roll over, I was cold all the time. Sleep came in fits and starts as my body shivered. Corey swapped places with me so I could be on the inside, and most nights she slept with one arm around me to give me as much of her body heat as possible. But I could not stop shaking. Diarrhea, at first only a nuisance, was now a serious threat. Every time I ate, I had to run to the toilet, and with no extra water to drink, I was seriously dehydrated. My weight continued to drop, and my skin took a translucent appearance. When I looked at my arms, it seemed as though I could look past the skin and see the tendons moving with the muscles. All my subcutaneous fat was gone, and each morning when I awakened, the cough was worse. I thought of Mama and how tuberculosis had taken such a toll on her. We had lived through it with her, and even though during her worst episode she confined herself to the bedroom, I wondered if I hadn't contracted the disease too. Others noticed my condition, but now instead of staring at me when I approached, they turned away. No one wanted to be near me. Even the guards looked away when we assembled for morning roll call. But at the Siemens building, things were different. The soldiers who stood watch in the hall followed me with their eyes as I made my way down the corridor. And in the workroom, the woman with the list hovered near me constantly. In mid-November, the snow began to fall. At home, it would have been beautiful with the streets and the rooftops covered in white. But outside the barracks, it was most unwelcome. Morning roll call, already a miserable experience, quickly became torture as we stood for hours in the snow and ice. By the time we were dismissed for work, all my energy was gone. Corey did her best to cover for me, and most days I made it to my workstation only because she walked with her arm around my waist to hold me up. Then one morning, the woman with the list failed to call my name for the Siemens assignment. Corey was forced to leave me behind. We were still in ranks, and I stood there watching as she and the others trudged up the street. A thousand memories flooded my mind, and I felt again the sadness of being separated from her when we were still in the prison at Slavingen. A second group was selected that morning to work outside, but again I was left behind. Finally, only a few of us remained, and I realized we were the weakest and the sickest. A guard ordered us back inside the barracks building, where we were directed to the knitting tables. From my seat at the table, I could see through the doorway into the dorm. Two women were lying on their bunks, apparently too ill even to report for roll call. I would have preferred to remain in my bunk that morning, too, but I was afraid it would only bring trouble if I asked. Guards who watched us stood in the doorway between the two rooms, and when it was time to check on those in their bunks, they sent a prisoner in to do it. As I thought about it, I remembered several times when the guards came only as far as the doorway. They stopped there in the morning when they roused us for a roll call. When food was distributed, they did it in the knitting room. And if someone was ill, they had others bring her out so they could see. I wondered about it, so I asked the woman seated next to me at the knitting table. That's right, she nodded, thinking that I was merely deriding the guards for their behavior. 
They think they're so tough, she continued with a smirk. They can beat us to the point of death, but they won't even walk two feet beyond the doorway. But why not, I asked again. I don't understand. Why won't they go into the dorm? They hate the fleas, another offered. Think of it, a woman said to the left, giggling. They push us around like we're nothing, and then they get pushed around by a flea that is nothing. Everyone at the table laughed until the guard caught our eye with a mean look, and we fell silent. That evening after supper, Corey and I gathered by the window to read and pray. Marjolaine joined us. We continued reading from the Romans and then prayed. This time, however, we did more than recite the Lord's Prayer, but prayed for the specific needs of our fellow prisoners. I added a prayer for the guards and soldiers, which Corey reluctantly supported. And then, instead of simply ending with an amen, I began to recount the things for which I was thankful and encouraged Corey and Marjolaine to do the same. Afterward, I told them what we'd learned about why the guards wouldn't enter the dorms because of the fleas. I looked over at Corey, and that's why we gave thanks for them when we first arrived here. Marjolaine looked surprised. You gave thanks for the fleas? She did, Corey said, pointing to me. Paul said to give thanks in all things, I shrugged. So I was giving thanks. Marjolaine nodded her head. Interesting. Don't say that, Corey quipped. You're only encourager. But it was too late. I was already encouraged by the Holy Spirit. For the next hour, Marjolaine and I talked about how God takes the things that seem to be nothing and makes them important. And the things that seem important, he turns into nothing. Those fleas, I grinned, are a gift from God. A few days later, coats were issued at morning roll call. Mine was much too large, but I was thankful to have it. When I sat at the knitting table, I wrapped the coat around me in a bundle that extended almost to my ankles. There was no heat in the building, but the extra fabric in the coat helped keep me warmer than I was before. Two days after we received the coats, Corey was taken off the job with Siemens and sent with a cruise that worked outside. Her group maintained the dirt streets that crisscrossed the prison grounds. She spent long days leveling and packing the surface, performing some of the hardest physical labor assigned to prisoners. Every evening she returned to the barracks exhausted and dirty. From one day to the next, my body grew weaker. I could feel the energy leaving me, and even my fingers, which had always been fast with knitting needles, fell me. I tried to keep up with the others at our table, but I was soon unable to keep my daily quota. My mind still remembered how to do the work and what my fingers were supposed to do. I just couldn't make them do it well or quickly anymore. Those who, who were seated with me were forced to pick up my work so that none of us had any trouble. Early one morning in the first week of December, I awoke and was unable to move my legs. This had happened before, but never quite like this. Corey urged me to stay in the bunk, but I was worried the guards would not like it and would take their frustrations out on the others in the barracks. We argued, but finally I convinced Corey to help me, and she pulled me over to the edge of the bunk and then carried me to the door. With her help, I made it down the steps, and we took our place on the back row of the formation. The wind that morning was bitterly cold, and the snow that had accumulated on the ground was frozen solid. Every bone in my body ached, and I was shaking from a fever. My breathing was labored, coming in short gasps. 
I was able to stand only by concentrating all my remaining energy on the effort to hold my knees in place. As was their practice, the guards withheld the roll call until sunrise, which was at least two hours away. Less than half an hour into the wait, a woman on three rows ahead of us collapsed. Guards who had been lurking around the edges of our formation dragged her to the punishment barracks, laughing and joking as they went. From the moment we were arrested, I had determined that the Germans would never change me, that I would not allow my circumstances to determine my attitude and would always keep my mind and heart on God and His purpose in my life. I'd been vigilant in that effort, even when it would have been easier to give in to bitterness and hatred. Moments like we were experienced tested my resolve, yet God always strengthened me and allowed me to use whatever happened like wind beneath my wings to lift me above the trouble. That morning, I felt Him near, and in my mind and spirit, I spread my wings to let Him once again lift me above the misery my body was experiencing. My feet were numb with cold and my body trembled with fever, but inside I was at peace. Ten minutes after the first person collapsed, a woman just down from us fell over. Two of her friends who were standing beside her caught her before she hit the ground and propped her up, hoping the guards wouldn't notice. The guards did, however, and all three were sent to the punishment barracks. The guards who took them shouted and berated them, saying, You cost me money. I bet no one would fall that soon after the first. Others who stood around watched us, joined in the laughter, and compared the times they had selected in the betting pool for the wages on who would fall next. Sadness swept over me at the sound of their voices. At first I had not seen what Papa saw, that the Germans were trapped by the evil to which they yielded themselves, and in danger of losing their souls forever. Even after I came to understand what he meant, it took a while for me to actually sense the presence of the personal evil that the Germans embraced. That morning, as they laughed and joked and made bets over who would collapse next, I sensed the presence of evil among us like I'd never felt it before. But it wasn't searching for me. It was searching for Corey. When we were younger, I was the bossy older sister. She was the impetuous youngest child always given to impulse, reacting without thought for the consequences. That attitude and disposition caused her some problems as a young woman, but those troubles were nothing compared to the stakes that she was about to face. I had reached my end. The strength in my body was gone, and there was no way to restore it. My body had been damaged beyond repair. Whatever we were to accomplish by our time in the prison, or afterwards as a result of our experiences, she would have to see it to the end. I was not going to be there with this body. But to get there, she had to get past the morning. So I leaned my head in her direction and said quietly, They are most to be pitied. My voice was hoarse and weak, and I could barely hear the words. But Corey's eyes brightened at the sound of them, and she said, What are you talking about? They make jokes and bets about us, I said as strongly as I could but they are making a bigger bet with the enemy, a bet that God will not hold them accountable. They don't care. The enemy wants you, Corey. I don't... Whatever happens, I continued, cutting her off, you must promise me that you will not give in to the evil that they embrace. Ignoring the guards and what they might do, Corey turned to face me. Don't talk like that. 
That was the Corey I'd known all my life. Never a regard for the consequences. Promise me that you will not let the enemy have your soul, I pleaded. I've never promised me, I insisted with all my remaining energy. I promise. Then my legs buckled and I fell to the ground. Sometime later, I became aware that I was lying in the ice. A guard stood over me, yelling at me to get up, get up. When I didn't move, I felt the toe of her boot strike me in the abdomen. And I heard Corey shout, Stop! She's sick! One of the guards who had been with us in the knitting room appeared, and I heard people talking. The one who had kicked me snarled, I got a prison full of sick women. Some of them are sick and some of them are fakes. The guard from the knitting room said, something in response, and the one who kicked me turned away in disgust. Corey bent over me and slipped one hand beneath my back and the other under my arms. Then she lifted me from the ground and I felt the jarring motion of her heavy steps. Seconds later, Marjolaine appeared at her side. She took her fingers over my forehead and winced. We need to take her to the infirmary. Someone shouted after us, If she's pretending, you'll all be in the punishment barracks tonight. With Marjolaine leading the way, Corey carried me up the street, and I knew when we reached the crematorium because I felt the warmth of the furnaces. Two buildings later, we arrived at the infirmary. By then, I was alert enough to know that a long line of people stretched ahead of us, waiting to be seen by a doctor. For two hours, we waited in the snow just to get inside the building, and we weren't the last in line. As we finally passed through the door, I glanced back to see as many more behind us as there were when we arrived. A nurse placed a thermometer in my mouth, and in a few minutes she came back to read it. One hundred and two, she said, shaking her head. Not enough. Not enough, Corey cried. What do you mean, not enough? Not enough for what? We can't keep anyone in here with a temperature that low. Take her back to the barracks. Corey and Marjolaine helped me back to the barracks and placed me on the bunk. Then the guards sent them to catch up with the work crew. All day long I lay there bundled in the coat and wrapped in the blanket, shivering with a fever. When Corey returned that evening, she took one look at me and called Marjolaine to come to our bunk. We have to get her back to the hospital. Marjolaine agreed, and the two of them carried me to the guard. To her credit, the guard never said a word but just pointed towards the door. At the hospital, there was once again a long line of people waiting to be seen. Snow was falling, and it covered the ice already on the streets, which made standing outside even more treacherous than before. But I insisted Corey set me down. I was trembling from the fever so violently I couldn't talk, but I managed to stand for all of ten minutes, and then I sagged against her shoulder. At that, Corey scooped me up in her arms and carried me past the line. The others protested loudly, but she ignored them and took me up to the front door. Marjolaine came in with us and held the door open while Corey took me inside. This time, when the nurse checked my temperature, it read 104, and they found a bed for me. It wasn't really a bed, just a cot with a cotton tick, but it was softer than the wooden bunks we slept on, and it had a real bottom sheet. There was only one blanket, but when the nurse saw how much I shivered, she gave me a second and let me keep my coat. When I settled on the cot, Marjolaine retreat, retreated to the door. Corey lingered at my side. Do you want the Bible, she whispered. I could only shake my head in response. Okay, she said. I'll check on you tomorrow and we can talk then. A nurse took her by the arm and nudged her towards the door, but Corey resisted. 
She didn't want to leave me there alone any more than I wanted to be there without her. I'll be back tomorrow, she said. But I knew what she really meant was, please don't die. And that's the end of chapter 47, and we'll be doing 48, which is our last chapter of the book. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.